0: For those of us who do the type of work that we do in the park service, that it's not a nine-to-five job. That it's actually part of your life and, uh, and that we're pretty heavily invested in it, philosophically, emotionally, and, and professionally. And so um, it, it really is a, uh, a lifestyle and it's, it, it's part, of, part of our fabric, I would say.
1: Welcome to Pelicanus. I'm your host, Austin Parker. Pelicanus highlights the people and organizations that are making it their purpose to grow the conservation field, to make right the wrongs of our past, and to show how people have and still are making a monumental difference in our world. We want to tell their stories. So we're here to show that not only is there something that can be done, it is being done by dedicated scientists who have made conservation their life, and that we can find optimism through science. Today's episode is about Olympic National Park in Washington State. Olympic is an interesting place. It has amazing wilderness. It has coastline, rivers, glaciers, and some awesome old-growth temperate rainforest. It has everything you'd want in a national park. But we talk to scientists that work on the front lines of climate change, ocean acidification, and intertidal habitat long-term monitoring. So let's hear from them, and let them explain their research and what it means for all of us far beyond the borders of their park.
0: I'm, uh, I'm Steve Radkin, and I'm the uh, coastal ecologist and limnologist at Olympic National Park. And so uh, limnology is essentially the study of lakes. And so I'm the lake biologist, lake ecologist for the park, and I'm also the marine ecologist for the park. My name is Jonathan Jones. I am a coastal ecologist with the National Park Service. Working at Olympic National Park, is, what, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. We've got uh, this amazing wilderness coastline, we've got uh, these rugged, glacier-filled mountains, uh, we've got huge forests. Uh, my laboratory is on a lake. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard to complain about it. Steve tells us a little bit about Olympic National Park, what types of research they do, and why. Well, the big picture here at Olympic is that we've got a uh, 65-mile coastline with 490 odd offshore islands that are all part of the park. So it's about 93 miles of coastline, and it's uh biodiversity hotspot. It's the long stretch of wilderness coastline in the lower 48. And one of the reasons why we have that biological diversity is because we have this huge diversity in, um, in habitats. And uh, just like in the, uh, in the Amazon, uh, you know, that, heterogene- that habitat heterogeneity really sort of um, encourages and facilitates uh, biological diversity.
1: National parks are special places. But in order to actually protect the land, you have to have the scientific knowledge to know what you're protecting and how to do it.
0: And so it's a, it's a really special place that's been set aside by the American public for uh, the National Park Service to, to maintain and protect. And so in doing that, uh, one of the things that we need to be able to do in order to uh, preserve and protect this area is to understand it. And uh, so the National Park Service is heavily invested in long-term monitoring. And so that's one of the major things that we do in my shop here, is that we, we long-term monitor things. And the, uh, the good thing about long-term monitoring is that sometimes it takes a while to, uh, to establish what trends are in terms of the status and the, or the health of a system. And uh, you really need those long-term data uh, in order to see what those long-term trends are. A lot of the, the world sort of works in four or five-year cycles. And for, uh, for ecology, sometimes it's hard to tell what's going on in those relatively short snippets of time. So from a marine ecology perspective, what we do is, is at Olympic here, our marine environment is the intertidal environment because that's where our boundary is. Our boundary goes to extreme low water, which is sort of a theoretical line. It's the farthest the tide ever goes out. And so in that area in between the tides, that's where we work and we uh, conduct long-term monitoring and other smaller research projects that we conduct that work in that area and the long-term monitoring focuses on rocky intertidal assemblages because we've got a lot of great rocky intertidal habitat focuses on uh, the community structure of organisms that live in sand beaches uh, which are really important for recycling nutrients out into the nearshore coastal ocean and also as uh, prey species for migrating birds, and uh, um, and then we also are monitoring uh, temperature, both the water temperature of the intertidal zone, uh, and also the uh, the temperature of sort of rock surfaces as a proxy for what intertidal organisms are experiencing when the tide is out. These are these are really important measurements, particularly over the long term, to see how uh, global climate change is uh, impacting these uh, these. Diverse communities. The species that make up these
1: communities are special since they live both underwater and in the air a couple times each day.
0: You know, they have a little bit, they've got a foot in both worlds, both the aquatic world and the terrestrial world. And so such things like climate change, etc., um, you know, will probably be affecting them doubly so, because not only are they getting warmed or affected by acidified waters, what have you, uh, but then they're also dealing with you know air temperature and desiccation, things like that. Warming, ocean acidification, uh, changes in species, I mean at the end of the day it's change and people get freaked out by change but um, change is not Change, change happens anyway, you know. You're only saying that because you're going to be dead pointing these things really at the fan. Well, I am, but here's the thing, here's the thing though, really. Here, here's the thing is that, you know, if you look back at when, you know, your grandparents were around, the world was a very different place than it is now. You know, as a species, we don't like change and uh, change kind of freaks us out, it reminds us that we're getting older, it reminds us that we're going to die, that, those sorts of things, and we like to think that the natural world in our own little world is just going to stay the same, and, you know, we do have big impacts on our world, but it doesn't mean our world comes to an end, you know, I think things like ocean acidification, perfect example of this, you know, oceans are changing, without a doubt, and they're going to, they're going to even if we cut off all CO2 emissions now, they're still going to change, But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to become these barren wastelands. They're just going to be different. And you know, when my kids or grandkids are walking around the coast of the ocean, it's going to look a little bit different than, or maybe a lot different than it does to us right now. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a horrible place for them.
1: Steve uses a great analogy to explain the idea of shifting baselines, one that we can all relate to.
0: If you think now about just technology, uh, you know technology is that my kids now are experiencing is radically different than what i experienced as as a kid which is radically ex- different than, than what my parents and my grandparents so i think the take home message here for me is that you know it's a generational thing this idea of change is a generational thing we accepting or maybe kind of blind to change in between generations because there are these shifting baselines. You know, what is normal for us is okay. And then you hear this with every generation as people get older. They go, oh, the kids today, I don't get it. Or, boy, things are way different than when I was a kid. And then, you know, they die and then, and then their kids, that's the new normal. And and so while I think you're right that there is this adaptation that human beings are really good at, maybe too good at, um, with between generations, you know, we sort of forget or conveniently push aside what the previous generation uh, experience was or what their baseline was.
2: Coast is going to find a way to adapt. Who says that the baseline of my, you know, current present isn't better or worse than the baseline of, of 50 years from now? It's it's different, and it it's might different. be it might be definitely different from what it was 50 years ago you know yeah for me this is my normal and to see it go away from normal is is you know sad for me or whatever but it it might just be the
0: reality of such a dynamic system i think an important i agree but i think i think an important point here with regards to you know change and this this the shifting baseline has to do what with what the agents of change are so I think through, you know, most of the human history, the agents of change have been natural changes. Ice ages, you know, catastrophic events, natural weather events and things like that, that I think the disturbing thing these days is that uh, a lot of the change is anthropogenic. A lot of the change is human caused and the rate of change that's human caused is increasing. So while, you know, all things being equal, if we hadn't dumped, you know, uh, a lot of CO two in the atmosphere and essentially caused uh, global climate change as a species, there still would be changes that our different generations would be experiencing. And, you know, we just have to deal with that.
2: So I guess how do you how do you tease apart? So thinking not as a scientist, but just as a regular citizen of this universe, how do you tease apart things like sea star wasting disease that happened over a few years, you know, caused by what we think might be warmer temperatures or some kind of anomaly in the system from the overall global impacts. I mean, how this is something that I struggle with as a climate scientist, you know, how do we how do we spread the message of, you know, climate change is going to likely have a negative impact on the majority of organisms from these organisms are suffering
0: from this disease. I mean, how do we parse that apart? Well, it's a very difficult thing. I mean, I think the the challenge is, as scientists, the challenge uh, for all of these sorts of issues, and I think the you know, ecology, evolution, uh, environmental science—that whole ball of wax—is you know aside from maybe physics—is probably one of the the more challenging fields of science because of the complexity. And I think particularly with climate science, um, it is a weight of evidence approach as opposed to a smoking gun. Um, you know, it's very hard. You look at uh, you look at. Uh, increases in the frequency and magnitude of storm events that we've experienced or, or warming uh, or or rain lack of rain uh, droughts and things like that you look at any one of these sorts of things and it you can't say aha that's climate change but climate science can make predictions about the aggregate about about uh, how these things are going to increase as in the frequency and magnitude over time, and as we see more and more of these things that are in line with predictions, then that weight of evidence, I think, then suggests these impacts associated with climate change. But yeah, sure, he, just because a big hurricane moves through, you can't really look at it and, and say, wow, that's climate change. Just in the same the, by, by the same token, you know, having uh, Senator Inhofe stand in, 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 on the Senate floor with a snowball, saying, "See, global warming is not real because it snowed," you know, any one of these events uh, it doesn't doesn't prove anything, but it's the weight of evidence. So,
2: when we talk about aggregate of science, yeah, maybe one two years aren't going to tell us exactly what's happening on the coast, but by being there year after year after year, returning to the same sites, measuring the same diversity of organisms, we can start to form that aggregate in the Park Service, and we can form that aggregate message, we can say, this is what's happening, and we know because of this data set that happened 10, 15 years in the past. So that's where the strength of our science really lies, I think.
1: So let's take a step back to explain what ocean acidification is, how it became a problem, and what exactly they are researching.
0: Monitoring ocean acidification. And So that's looking at uh, actually not only ocean pH, but actually the whole carbonate system of the uh, nearshore ocean because essentially uh, humanity has uh, doubled the, uh, the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and that carbon dioxide has to go someplace in equilibrium. It dissolves into the ocean. So we've been monitoring that on the outer Olympic coast and we've expanded that program over to San Juan Island this summer in 2015 so we can compare the outer coast of Washington, uh, the outer Pacific coast, to the Inland Sea, which is the Salish Sea, uh, where the San Juans are, are, are sitting.
1: As more and more carbon dioxide is pumped into our atmosphere, it needs to accumulate in the ocean which is a natural process, but with the amount of CO2 dissolving into the oceans, the pH is falling, which has consequences. But this field is quite new. Steve and Johnny are on the front lines.
0: Ocean acidification science is is still in its infancy. Um, I mean, it's a field that's maybe 10, 15 years old. And the Park Service is just gearing up now to establish uh, uh, a network of sites uh, to monitor ocean acidification. and I'd actually argue that the Park Service is ideally suited for doing that because we've got sort of three things going for us. We've got the real estate. We've got uh, throughout the, the Pacific, both uh, in the lower 48 and in Alaska and in the South Pacific Islands, uh, we have national parks and national monuments that are Situated where some of these most vital marine resources are, and then also on the east coast, all along the east coast from Maine, Acadia, Maine, down to down to Florida, and then into the Caribbean and into the Gulf Coast. Uh, we've got uh, the Gulf of Mexico. We've got uh, so we've got the real estate. We've got the resources. All these places have uh, really valuable, really uh, important natural resources, and then. Uh, just as importantly, in the Park Service, we have the mission. Uh, national parks have a very clean mission, is to, uh, to remain unimpaired for the enjoyment of future generations. We also have this very strong preservation and conservation ethic that is, is part of our mission. So we've got the real estate, we've got the resources, and we've got the mission. And particularly from a marine perspective, we've got the 40 odd marine national parks that are scattered all over you know, both oceans. So it makes sense that we should have a network of marine parks where we're doing the same thing in terms of monitoring ocean acidification. So we can say what the regional and local effects of ocean acidification are on these vital resources. And that's really sort of the impetus or the reason why we started doing ocean acidification monitoring in the first place. Now to go into
1: a little bit more detail, John is going to explain the technology
2: they use to conduct their research. This last summer, we purchased some of the more state-of-the-art, technology-wise instruments, they're called CFETs. Uh, We added those on to a previously used instrumentation, the YSI. Uh, It's a very complex process by which CO2 from the atmosphere goes into the water. The way that we measure that complex process is with these instruments.
0: The important difference between these technologies is that the CFET is uh, much more accurate. It's uh, an order of magnitude more accurate than these classical electrochemical probes. And there's an interesting balance there. You know it's very sort of Alice in Wonderland, Red Queen-y in that you can run forever to keep up to speed with what the latest and the greatest is. And you know that way sort of lies madness you know, as a, as a program manager, I can sit back and say, well, what we're using right now, it's not something that the, uh, the research community out there would look at and say, oh, you're using that? Well, your data is not usable. I mean, I think that uh, the take-home message is that the data that we're gathering right now with the new instrumentation that we're, we have uh, will be robust enough. So while staying up
1: to date on the current technology, Steve's going to explain the importance of the long-term monitoring that they
0: do. In in essence, long-term monitoring is to observe and to characterize. I I would say it's, you know, I'm a scientist, so I'll use a $5 word for it instead, but I'd say characterize uh, uh, what's what's going on. The challenge in designing a long-term monitoring program is that you've got to sort of plan to measure the right stuff for what you Are going to want to know in the future and you know so for right now we think like oh, ocean acidification, sea level rise, temperature, all these things that we think are important now and are going to be important in the future but sometimes these things things crop up that you didn't see, that you didn't think about and it would be nice to have a general enough program that would capture something about that signal in the future so that you could say something about it. That's a a very sort of a tough gamble. And so, you know, an example that I would use is sea star wasting disease.
1: Sea star wasting disease is a phenomenon that has been occurring on the west coast for the last few years, where many species of sea stars are disappearing. So,
0: we've been, our intertidal monitoring, our long-term monitoring program has been going here at Olympics since around 2006. And one component of that intertidal monitoring program is that we've monitored sea stars. Why? Because they're important in the system. They're the original keystone predator, which basically means that, that they have a, an impact on the community structure that is uh, disproportionate to their abundance. So you don't need a whole lot of them to have a really big effect. And some of the structure that you see out there in terms of zonation patterns is set by these, these, these predators. So seems like that would be a good thing to keep track of. And so we started keeping track of them in 2006. Well in 2013 we noticed, actually our coastline, the Olympic coastline was the first place that we noticed, uh, that anyone noticed uh, sea star wasting disease and uh, then it it spread all up and down the west coast of North America and so it's become a really huge issue affecting more than 20 species of sea stars, leading to local extirpation of, uh, of, of sea stars, and, uh, and lasting multiple years. So as opposed to previous incidences of sea star disease, this is, a, this is a, a phenomenon that is having a huge geographic impact, a huge species impact, a lot of different species of sea stars, and it's lasting a long time. Whereas previous uh, occurrences of things that looked like this happened for a year in a specific locale and affected one species. So it's a big deal. And in 2013, we saw this happening uh, on the Olympic coast. And now we've actually got probably one of the best data sets uh, looking at what the, the uh, occurrence, the time course of this, uh, this disease event and what the impacts are. And that's basically because we had this long-term monitoring program in place where we have now a bunch of years of pre-data before this disease hit, and we have a bunch of years now after this, and we're gonna continue monitoring. And if we hadn't been involved in that long-term monitoring program, then we would have missed that. We would have been playing catch-up and trying to, trying to figure things out. And so to a certain extent, we're ahead of the game because we have this long-term monitoring program. Uh, I think that that, is, that that illustrates the value of these long term monitoring programs, not only to keep track of the things that a priori at the beginning you know that you want to keep track of, that you know are going to be important, but also these other things that, that these unknowns, these, these unforeseen events that, uh, that you're going to be able to look back at your data and say, Ah, you know what? we can pick that. we can pick that signal out of here. We can see what those impacts are. Because the thing about sea star wasting disease, just a third step back to that, we think that it is a, uh, a virus which is causing this. But that virus has been in the environment since at least the 1940s. And we know that because uh, we've been able to go back to museum specimens and, and isolate the DNA from these museum specimens that were, that were racked up in the 1940s. A couple of different things has happened is either that virus has mutated and become much more virulent, or there is something that has changed in the environment that has allowed that virus to become ecologically released.
1: What does that mean for the future of sea stars and the rocky intertidal habitat?
0: I tend to be a glass-half-full sort of person. So I think with sea stars, I think we'll have sea stars in the future. I don't think the sea star wasting disease is going to, uh, you know, be a mass extinction of sea stars. However, I think it can fundamentally change uh, sort of what the population dynamics are of sea stars. And so it can change it to the effect to, to the extent that it changes the impact that sea stars have in terms of structuring their communities. So I think that your children and my children and my grandchildren are gonna be able to see sea stars, but the communities that sea stars are part of may look very different as a result. Sea star wasting disease
1: is important, but what are the implications of ocean acidification and climate change? How
2: do we figure out this problem? It is about humans, and it's a, it's a problem that humans have the potential to solve. But we need the emotional response. We need something to tell us that it's worth solving. With ocean acidification, with climate change, it's it's a, really a slow burn. It's not something that's on our doorstep. It's not like we can't go down and get fresh salmon right now. We we can still do that. 20, 30 years, if we can't do that, it's going to be more of an immediate stimulus. So how are we going to... How are we going to make sure that it's an emotional thing for people? How are we going to make sure that, that people recognize the need to respond to this threat? And that's, that's a big part of the challenge. And, again, that's where the Park Service comes through is that we're out there broadcasting. I mean, things like this radio show, we're broadcasting the need to pay attention to these things. Because although it might not be happening today or tomorrow or, or next Saturday, it is something that is currently affecting us and is going to continue to affect us. this research is as
1: important as any being done right now. And Steve and Johnny understand how incredible it
0: is to be able to do what they do. I consider myself exceedingly fortunate to do the work that I do. Uh, So, you know, from a personal perspective, it's an aesthetically pleasing place to be. You know, from a professional perspective, I really like being attached to an area. So there's 922,000 acres, it's a pretty big area, but there's this place that I get to study and also, in another hat, help manage. And so, uh, for for my brief tenure on this planet as a working professional, you know, I get to have an impact on on how this place that's been set aside by the American public, uh, how that is managed, and th- that's pretty gratifying on a personal level. To you know, to, to be able to look at a, at, a, at a map of the United States and see this, this chunk of coastline and say, that, you know, I, I help with that. One of the things I always say about my job is that, you know, there are just so many cool things to do. Because in national parks, in big national parks like this, there's so little that has actually been done. Because of the, where the National Park Service came from it, it, it came about as a place for people to come and look at and, and to enjoy. And as as time has gone by, these parks have become islands of wildernesses. Everything else has become developed around it. And so they, they really have become these these very sort of special places. And being able to work in one of these special places and to to study things in a as pristine an environment as you can. Get in the lower 48 states. It's 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 pretty cool to be able to uh, to to spend your days uh, working in one of these really sort of pristine environments that you know I don't really call it my own, but you know for shorthand, yeah, that I can call my own, that I can have my my fingerprints
1: on. And this research has implications beyond the
0: borders of Olympic National Park. The things that we work on. Then translate beyond park boundaries that are important. So you know the ocean acidification work. You know the work that we're doing on the Olympic Coast and that we're expanding down to uh, the Southern California Coast. That work goes beyond our park boundaries and has importance in connections to what's going on globally in that field of science. So you know you roll that all up. You got the the big science picture. You got the the local or regional land or ocean management, and then you, know, you roll it even further up and you got the, the personal satisfaction of, of working in a, uh, in a great organization in a really pleasing place. I mean, it is a walk in the park. You know, we, we work in national parks. It's very, we're very fortunate to be able to spend our time in places that people go on vacation.
1: However, being in their positions, they still have a responsibility to managing their park.
0: Park Service, we don't have the luxury of just being scientists. We're scientists slash managers. And that's actually one of the great things about, I find personally satisfying about working in the Park Service, is that we get to wear multiple hats. That uh, I get to advise the superintendent on on issues that, uh, that, you know, I'll put quotes around it, that I'm an expert at. And, uh, um, and so that I get to advise the superintendent and, and have a real impact on, on how this, this, this area is managed. And Johnny shares in Steve's excitement for the work. I'm
2: excited about the field that I've chosen to work in. I'm, I'm excited about my career path because as Steve was saying earlier in the conversation, ocean acidification is relatively new scientifically. So I'm really coming in on the ground floor of the next generation. I'm excited about the fact that I have a meaningful role it might be a very tiny role in the future of science but I'm I'm on the ground floor of this this scientific topic and the things that I'm doing today actually matter you know they might not matter on the grand scale but they do matter for solving this this global problem and
0: I think there is, there is this rarefied fraction of humanity that actually has had the luxury through whatever luck or skill to basically do something that they wanna do that's enjoyable to them and still make a living.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I think that's a, a really rare thing. For those of us who do the type of work that we do in the park service, um, you know, and Johnny hit on this a little bit earlier, that it's not a nine to five job. That it's actually part of your life and, uh, and that we're pretty heavily invested in it. You know. Philosophically, emotionally, and, and professionally, and so um, it it really is a uh, a lifestyle, and it's, it, it's part of part of our fabric, I would say. And I think that's actually from a NPS perspective. That's one of the things I really like about the National Park Service, as opposed to a lot of other federal and state and whatever other organizations, is that there is that uh, that 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 camaraderie. There is that uh, uh, the esprit de corps which is integral to, to, to the service, which is uh, not necessarily a common thing. But what's next for this program? How can it grow? Next steps for, uh, for uh, our program here is, is to keep on keeping on. But from the long-term monitoring perspective, it's to keep on doing what we're doing right now for long-term monitoring and to grow the ocean acidification program. I think that's sort of like the big next step. It's not only expanding it to Cabrillo, but then expanding it to other park service units. And we're working with the, uh, the national office on a strategy for that. So that's that's the, uh, the, the thing there. And then, you know, from a research perspective, Uh, what we're doing uh, in terms of sea star wasting disease and continuing to keep track of that and to try to tease out environmental signals that that may be important in terms of initiating that disease. So they're growing
1: these programs to understand the trends over the entire West Coast.
0: We've got a variety of marine national parks. We've got Cabrillo National Monument, we've got Channel Islands National Park, we've got Redwoods National Park, we've got a variety of uh, parks around the the San Francisco Bay Area, we've got the, uh, the Washington Park. So we've got this nice network of parks along here, and over the last decade we've been making stronger and stronger and stronger ties between those parks such that now we've got really great communication and, gr- and great coordination between parks. And so I, I think that's a, that's a pretty important thing.
1: The National Park Service plays an integral role in this research in helping our country
0: move into the future. As people have become more and more divorced from the natural world, um, parks play a huge role in re-engaging folks. And so, you know, with demographic shifts in the United States, I mean, there are, are huge efforts underway in the Park Service to make uh, to make parks much more approachable to uh, people who live in urban environments, people of, of, of diverse cultures, diverse ethnic backgrounds that are normally not well represented as park visitors. There are a lot of efforts now to to have outreach to, to, to those folks. The goal is that uh, parks are are portals to a lot of American heritage, uh, both natural and cultural heritage, but also uh, they're portals to uh, an understanding uh, and appreciation of our environment. The recent increase
1: in research and funds going towards ocean acidification and climate science and awareness is uplifting. It shows that humanity has the capacity to
0: do the right thing. There are a lot of things about uh, uh, about humanity, once again, I, I'm a glass half full sort of person. There are a lot of things throughout human history that you say, wow, how did we ever make that decision to do that? That was a particularly enlightened thing and goes against all of our baser instincts. Uh, how, did, how did we get our act together to do that? But you know, to humanity, there's a reason why we're still around. And it's because by and large, Of all the horrible crap that we do, by and large, we get it right.
1: I'd like to thank Olympic National Park, especially Steve Fradkin and Jonathan Jones, for taking the time to talk to us. Also, thank you to the National Park Service and the Cabrillo National Monument Conservancy. Producers on this episode are Austin Parker and Taylor Parker. You can look for our photos of the work that Steve and Johnny do in the park at pelicanus.org, or on our social media sites at Pelicanus Radio.